Have you ever watched bread being made? I'm sure some of you have, but they make it a lot different in West Africa. One day I decided I thought I would go see how they make the local bread. That's probably not a good idea. I go to this little area, now you know where we live, it gets up into 120 degrees. And this guy is working under this little shelter in the hot sun. And he's wearing this, this tank top that is just soaked in sweat. And all I can see is he's, he's working the dough back and forth through these rollers that are um, powered by this greasy diesel engine. And the whole time sweat is just pouring off his body into this bread dough. And I'm thinking, oh, and that's what I've been eating these last few months since I've been here. And then not only that, some of it falls to the ground, and he just picks it back up and works it into the dough and keeps going. And that sounds a little bit disgusting. I thought, next time I'm just going to stay home and eat the bread and not think about it. But you know, making bread is a lot of work. If... Uh, you didn't really know how it was made, the process, you'd probably think it looked like complete destruction. A loaf of bread from crushed wheat and a cup of wine from crushed grapes. They're symbols of communion and they're symbols of brokenness. As we enter this Christmas season, we think of Jesus and how he entered this world as a, as a tiny, perfect baby. Everything about him was good and innocent and unbroken, but we all know that he would grow up to be, that that body would grow up and be pierced and crushed and broken. Yeah, crushed grapes to wine, broken wheat to bread. The symbols of brokenness, and yet these are the very symbols our Lord Jesus Christ chose by which to remember him. The prophet Isaiah says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. You see, our Lord Jesus was crushed and broken and just before his time of suffering began, he cries out to God, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities, for our sinfulness. Our salvation and our wholeness came through his brokenness. You see, it's in the brokenness that wholeness is found. It's in the breaking that God's power is shown in our weakness. It's in the breaking that God reveals his goodness. We've wanted our cup to be taken from us this last term. It was one of the most difficult seasons in our ministry there. West Africa has always had its challenges. A friend of mine recently said, I was doing my devotions and there was this little fly buzzing around and annoying me and I thought of you. And I was like, <laughs> you thought of me from an annoying little fly? <laughs> Thanks for the encouragement. <laughs> and she said, I was reminded, she spent some time in West Africa, and she said, I was reminded of all the annoying little things that you have to put up with every day. And so I just prayed a prayer of blessing for you. 
And it's true, we, you know, I remember when we were first there and harmaton season came in and I'd be wearing my veil, my headscarf and my veil and my, my wrap skirt and the wind would be blowing and I'd be trying to walk to visit somebody in the hospital and I'm holding my skirt here so that I won't flash anyone and then I'm, I'm holding my veil here so it won't come off and then I'm trying to cover up my face to keep the sand from blowing in and then when I got a baby later, I'd be trying to keep my baby's head from flopping around as they're asleep on my back and... And the dust that just blows in every day and the, the heat, that intense heat that caused us to have rashes and boils that broke it under arms so we walk around like this has special challenges. But we never had come up to face challenges like we did this last season. If you had told us in the midst of it all that we'd know God's goodness more and see the most fruit that we had ever seen, we would not have believed you. So you see, God reveals his goodness and his joy in the breaking, but it's the breaking that we resist the most. A few years ago, I was driving back to our home in West Africa after dropping Katie and the kids off in another city because the terrorist activity in our area had increased. I was going back and I was thinking about the risk I was taking, thinking about uh, going back and helping these refugees. You see, in our town, all these refugees had come from another country because a terrorist group had been killing people, burning down their homes, and even taking their children to be a part of their group. Many of these people came with nothing, and here they were living in our town. And so, we got some money together and we were able to purchase some food and some blankets for these refugees. But at the same time, the terrorist activity had increased around us. And so we took our family out of town. But I was going back to finish this job, to try to stay there for a couple more weeks to help these people who really needed to see God's love. And on that trip back, along the way, I kept meet, running into people and they were saying, where are you going? And I would tell them, they said, you're going there? Didn't you hear about the shop that was burnt down today? Didn't you hear about the bomb that went off? And of course I hadn't, and all that was actually rumors in the end. But I was starting to have doubts whether this risk was worth, worth it, what I was doing. And so I scrolled through my iPod looking for a sermon to listen to that might be encouraging. I landed on one by our very own Matt Proctor. So be careful if you listen to Matt Proctor speak. <laughs> So he was talking about the risk and the reward, and he was talking about, it was a sermon about Peter taking the risk of getting out of the boat. And he said, you can never know the reward unless you take the risk. And so that was what I needed to hear at that moment. It was encouraging, and I kept going along my way. But as I was driving, this thought kept repeating in my mind. Actually, a memory I had of my dad having a secret closet in his bedroom that he hid our Christmas presents and other stuff he didn't want us to know about. But of course, we didn't figure out how to get in there. But that thought kept going in my mind, and I thought, you know, maybe I need to make my own secret closet. Because we had a, a closet in, in our bedroom that was in the middle of the house. And I thought, maybe I'll need this sometime while I'm back, and I should go ahead and make it in the next couple of weeks. But when I arrived at the house, that thought really just pressed hard on my heart. And so I made it right there. I got a wall hanging out, and hung it across our wall, nailed it across there, moved some furniture so that you wouldn't even see the closet. And you just had to jump under the, the desk, lift up the curtain, and you'd be in the closet. 
And so after that, I still wasn't sure what I was going to do this evening, so I got a movie out, grabbed some chocolate, sat down to watch a movie and relax. But again, right when I sat down, another feeling overwhelmed me, a feeling that I needed to lock our doors. Now, I'd already locked our compound door, which kind of surrounds our yard, but I never lock our house doors until we're ready to go to bed because we have an outside toilet. There's no need to to lock until you're ready to go to bed. But at that moment, I just really felt God telling me, lock your doors. And so I got up, I locked our front door, and I locked our back door, and I sat down and proceeded with the movie. And after a while, I heard this noise outside. And I knew our cat was outside somewhere, and I hadn't found her yet, so I thought, well, that must be the cat. And I walked over to the door just just to listen, and all of a sudden I see our door handle just go up and down. And immediately, I knew somebody had jumped our wall and it was in our compound. And again, as I thought about that, I didn't have to think about where to run to because I already had that secret closet made that had already been impressed upon my heart just, just an hour earlier. And so I immediately dashed back into the bedroom, duck under the desk and to the, through the curtain, get in the closet and just stand there stiff as a board, praying, not knowing what's going to happen next. All of a sudden I hear, boom, boom, boom. Gunfire had rattled the metal door of our, of our home. I hear it shaking violently, and I'm just sitting there praying, standing there praying, asking God for protection, asking God to keep this door closed, asking God to give me strength for whatever may happen next. Again, I hear the door rattling, and all of a sudden, it goes quiet. And I'm waiting and waiting. I wait there until morning comes. And God had kept this door that was held together with cheap welding and a little local lock closed, even though it had been, had been shot through over and over. A little while later, about a month, I was back in that area getting, checking over our house and getting a few more things. I climbed up on the roof just to check for leaks before rainy season, and I find an unexploded hand grenade. And again, I realized that that night, God had, had really protected me. And so after that, it wasn't easy to go to sleep at night. Even now, I sometimes look out our window in the evenings just wondering if I'll see somebody creeping across our yard. And so to make that decision to go back to West Africa wasn't easy. It was even tougher when we came back to the States and people, Christians, were like, well, obviously you're not going back. You're not going to take your children back to a risky place like that, are you? Is it worth it? And that question, is it worth it, was a question that echoed through our hearts for the years to come. So I thought I was prepared to continue there, ready to go back, and then I found myself sitting at a conference with a woman from an organization who was grieving the loss of her husband. They had both spent a considerable amount of time in captivity with terrorists, and she had been released, and they were awaiting the release of her husband and thought that it was just about to happen, everything was in place, and he was unexpectedly killed. I remember we were singing 
different songs in the worship time and one song especially that we kept singing had the words in the chorus, we offer up our lives. And I've sung similar words to that hundreds of times, but this time it was like the words were just screaming at me, asking me questions that I didn't have any answers to. And I stood there asking the, I just stood there asking the Lord, I said, how many more are you gonna ask for from our organization this next year? How many more can we handle losing? And what about my own husband? I, I can't handle that. How many more are you gonna ask for? And I remember sitting down with a counselor and going through Psalm 27 with her. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And trying to pray through those fears. And I remember just her speaking to me with words of wisdom and saying, Katie, you need to get with the Lord and you need to have your have a way with him. You need to talk to him and you need to ask him these questions and you need to get to a place that you will be okay no matter what. You need to get to a place that everything is gonna be okay, that you've given up that part of your life if you're gonna continue and that you will be okay no matter what he decides to do. So I, I remember still saying, God, this is a lot for me, but coming to a place of wrestling through those fears and looking forward to sending James back on his own to this town, not looking forward to it, but looking ahead and, and smiling bravely and trying to surrender those fears to the Lord. So I went back. I went back to find a, a seven-year-old boy who had become like a son to us. We'll call him Mark for his safety. Now, Mark was a boy who lived with us for almost five years, a boy we took care of. We first, when we first moved to West Africa, we moved in to a neighborhood and his family was living next door to us. Now, his dad was never around. His mother was schizophrenic. There would be times that she would leave this little two-year-old locked up in their house and she'd be gone for most of the morning. Every time she would come home from the market, and I would say, where's, where's market? And she'd say, oh, I left him in the market. You know how kids are, he refused to come, and he's a two-year-old. And nobody else around took care of this young little boy because obviously he was gonna be crazy like his mother. They thought if he drinks his mother's milk, he's just gonna be crazy like her. And so it broke our hearts. And so gradually, we started taking care of, of this young little boy. We bathed him, we clothed him, we fed him. We even started taking him to preschool so that he could get some kind of education. And then eventually, we were getting ready to go back to the States for our home assignment. And the father even encouraged us to take him. I mean, we wanted to, I and mean, then he said, who's gonna take care of him if, if you're not here? I'm not around, his mother can't do it. And so Mark came back with us and spent six months here in the States with us. He was, he was our son. And we came back and he just continued to live with us. And then the next time we were getting ready to come back to the States, his father refused to allow him to come back with us. And so that was hard. And but we were coming back for six months. Um, Katie was pregnant again and we were just trying to figure out what to do. So after about three months, I came back to West Africa 
wanting to spend at least a month or so with Mark, trying to get him back in school and, and help him get settled, and just to have that time with him as a son. It was in that moment that we found out that his relatives didn't want him to be with us. They thought if he grew up with us, he'd become a Christian. And so they took him while we were away and shipped him off to another country. A country where terrorist activity was was taking place. A country that we really couldn't get into because of that. And so for two and a half years, we never heard from him. We never saw him. We didn't know what was going on in his life. We tried and tried again to make contact with him. We prayed and we prayed to God. We had our, all of our prayers supported, praying for him, praying for the situation. And yet it seemed like God was being silent. Finally, it seemed like a door was being opened. A friend of mine had been talking to some of his, Mark's relatives and he found out what town Mark had been sent to. He found out the name even of his religious teacher. And so with that information and God's grace, our friend was able to find and locate his religious teacher and even find Mark. And he saw him in in tattered clothes, begging for food. And yet this is the lifestyle for these boys. And he asked Mark when he found him, do you want to stay here or do you want to go back and live with, with James and Katie? And he said, I want to go back. And even his friend who was with him said, take me out of here too. So this is the lifestyle these boys are leading. And so when our friend came back and told us about this, we went to the local judge, we went to the local king and we asked for, for their help. And, and they both gave us their authority to bring him back. And as the days played out, we actually were traveling the day that our friend brought him back because there was a conference going on that we were at. And so there's a few more days before we could get back to that town where Mark had been brought to. And I don't know what took place in those few days, but it was enough to break our hearts. We stood before this judge thinking that we were going to have custody finally to be able to have Mark to be officially our own, take him out of this situation that he was living in, only to have Mark deny he even knew us in front of the judge. He wouldn't even look at us while we were there. And he told the judge that he would rather live with his dad than us because he didn't know who we were. And this was the same kid just a few days earlier our friend had asked and he said he wanted to live with us. And so again, we just felt our lives being crushed, being broken like wheat, ran through a mill. A boy we raised for for five years was now denying us. And I just cried out, Lord, take this cup from me. Unfortunately, we didn't know that there was more wine to be poured into our cup. Eva, our three-year-old now, was six months old, and she woke up from a long nap, and her, she had a bloody stool, and so we immediately called a Western doctor who said, you need to drive west as soon as possible. We can't know exactly what that is, and you need to start heading to, to health care. And so we did drive west, and, and when we arrived there, her diaper was filled with blood, and they immediately admitted her in the hospital and said she was going into shock. And 
they said she had amoebas and they put her on a, an antibiotic IV. And they said she should see improvement the next day. Well, the next day she wasn't showing any improvement. I remember one particular moment I had spread out my wrap, one of my extra wrap skirts on the bed because there was no sheets available and I was looking for water to clean her up and there was none in any faucet anywhere around and looking for nurses to give the next injection and there's no nurse to be found. And I remember thinking, why am I here? Why do I have my child in a place that doesn't even have basic necessities? So she continued to not show improvement and we, we finally discovered that her intestine had fallen into itself and was blocked and you have 48 to 72 hours from the first symptoms to do an operation um, or otherwise you lose your child. We were speaking on the phone with a doctor who um, we said, she's just started vomiting blood and she said, I don't know if you have time. And so we, um, we agreed to do, a, to do the surgery there, even though we knew that the post-operation was what you had to worry about. And we, um, we were just shocked when the anesthesiologist said, no, I'm not gonna do it right now. I need to wait until the morning until I have someone else with me. And so we said, if that's the case, we're out of here. And we decided the best next option was to head to the capital city, which was 14 hours drive away. Well, this is when things went from bad to worse. And the vehicle that we had just driven there that never had problems starting would not start. The mission plane wouldn't fly at night because there were no lights on the tarmac. Finally, they mentioned an ambulance, but getting an ambulance driver to awaken in the middle of the night was not easy, and they kept trying. We said, keep trying, keep trying. And finally, they get an ambulance driver. And then they have to find a nurse and a police officer to escort us so we can go through the barriers. And so finally, in the middle of the night, we load up and we drive as fast as we can towards the capital city. And we reach um, a hospital where we were, a mission hospital where we were able to board a plane to, make, to save a few hours. We arrive in the capital city and our daughter, they performed a procedure and she, as you can see, is a beautiful, young, healthy little baby. But unfortunately after that, when you see, you know, God's work, this miracle, everyone's praying and she's doing so much better. But this mama <laughs> was not handling that well, going back to a place that did not have healthcare. And so, and Eva would just get sick with everything. I don't know if it's because she <laughs> refused to avoid using the community cup, even though I'd slap her little hand because everyone there drinks out of the same cup. So she's getting viruses from everyone. She's drinking from that dirty bucket. And no matter how much I would try to stop her, I'd turn my back and the next minute that stubborn little girl would be over there drinking out of that dirty thing. Um, but she had respiratory infections and diarrhea for over a month that wouldn't go away twice. She had cellulitis of the eye, malaria, febrile seizures, you name it, she got it. She's been on more antibiotics than I've been on in my entire lifetime. And so it got to this place where it was as if the evil one was just saying, why are you keeping your child in this location where you can't even give her, um, you can't go to a doctor. And I remember feeling that weariness of like, I want a doctor to treat her instead of me. And just trying to hold up my weary head and trying to keep my daughter healthy. 
And so it just got to a place where it became really discouraging, and I felt like I am only able to try to keep my daughter alive. Like, what about ministry? (laughs) And so we just got to a really weary place where I, I was just asking God, this is too much for me to stay here. It's really too much. Is this worth it? Is it worth the risk that I'm putting my children in, keeping them away from adequate health care? But even wheat has to be pulverized before it can turn into something like this. And so it continued. Later, we went through a time of questioning and just asking ourselves, are we doing any good? Is anyone really listening to our message that we've been saying for eight years now? You know, you got even worse when a man that we had been really pouring into for a year in this new town we were living in, Abdullah, seemed to betray me and lie to me. We'd been working with him and, and doing Bible studies, and, but a lot of times he seemed preoccupied and, and not really listening, like he was just dragging us along. We helped people in his village. We started a pharmacy. And then one day he's like, there's this village about 45 minutes drive across the, the sands where they want to hear about Jesus. I was like, really? He's like, yeah. I said, well, let's go. Let's go tomorrow. He's like, that's great. Let's go. And so I go to his village. We load up in the car with a few others from the village and we drive all the way out there. And we get there and he says, you know, before we uh, talk to him, let's go greet this man. He's, he's been sick for a while. And that's, that's a normal thing to do. But then as I was walking up, I see this man has an infected leg. His leg is completely ulcerated and swollen up to his knee, infected, oozing. And I started to think, oh yeah, we just helped a couple other people from his village with leg problems. This is why I'm here today. It's not because there's really a group of people wanting to hear about Jesus. It's because I have money, I have a car, and I already helped a couple people with leg problems. And I realize that as I'm walking up to this man named Muhammadu. And I was just, again, asking God, why are we here? Who cares? You know, I'm tired of being broken. So we'd been in West Africa about eight years and had seen very little fruit. And change, both spiritual and physical, seemed really far away. Um, So we'd be helping with crisis after crisis, helping people who were hungry and just feeling a weariness in doing good. And we wondered if we should go to a different ministry where our gifts could be used in a way that actually counted. And the suffering that we saw in the people around us was hard. The local believers had been chased from their homes and their homes had been burnt and attacked. Deaths would just happen needlessly because of a lack of knowledge of healthcare. And so we just really felt like, wow, as if you can't tell, like this is really hard. So we continue to ask God, are all these sacrifices we've made for you really worth it? Are you, Jesus, worth our everything? We realize that Jesus was not only worth our going through pain and suffering, but Jesus was worth everything that we had to offer. And so, slowly and quietly, we came to realize ourselves that wheat must first be broken before it can be produced into a loaf of bread. Grapes must first be crushed before we can have juice. 
realize that God was taking us and breaking us like this wheat and crushing us like this grapes so that something so much greater could be made from us. Something even more amazing than we had ever imagined. When we left the town where the terrorist, um, terrorist attack had taken place, we didn't know where we would go or what we'd be doing next. And so I kept coming back to help with the refugees. And one of our neighbors who we were living next to seemed to be open to the gospel a little bit. Not so much into hearing about Jesus, but just hearing about the prophet stories. But after I came back again and again to help with the refugees after I was attacked, he came to me and said, why do you come back here? You were attacked by terrorists and you keep coming back to our town. I don't understand. See, an opportunity that I never had before had just been opened up to share the gospel. God was using this terrorist attack in order to reach the heart of our neighbor. And then earlier this year, I get a text message from him out of the blue and he just says, I want to follow Jesus. Where, where would that have happened if, if the attack hadn't taken place? And although, and though we dearly miss Mark, we know that the Lord is good and we know that he has a good plan in store for him. We know his story isn't finished yet. In fact, when we think about Mark, we are reminded about the story of Joseph, how Joseph was betrayed by his, his brothers, how he suffered, how he was shipped off to another country, and yet through it all, God was with him. You know, we take courage in the, in the fact that maybe Mark one day will be able to look at his relatives just as Joseph looked at his brothers and say, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And from this brokenness, we felt in our hearts from losing Mark that we even began to see the boys in our neighborhood a little bit differently. These same boys that come to our town to do what Mark was shipped off to do. And so because of that brokenness, because of that pain, we now feed 120 of them every week as much as we can. We show them God's love and God's mercy. And the man with the infected leg, Muhammadu, who needed to go to the hospital, we did in, indeed help him. Like I said, his leg was completely infected. And so at first, reluctantly, I loaded him up in my car with his, his, his brother and we took him to our house. We got his leg bandaged and then we uh, paid for him to go to a mission hospital, which was about a day's drive on the bus. And we, and we sent him there with his brother with all the money that he needed to get his, his foot um, taken care of. Before he left, I gave him a little radio that had all the scriptures on it in his language. I told him these were stories of the prophets in his language and he was amazed because he hadn't heard these stories before, let alone in his own language. And when he came back from the hospital a month later, I asked him if he had been listening to it and he said, you know, I've never heard stories like this before. I've never heard news like this before. And so not wanting to lose this opportunity, I said, well, let's, let's do a little bit of a, a Bible study. Let's do a little bit of study together of these prophets, prophet stories. And so every night we started meeting together and we started listening to these stories from creation to Christ. And when we got to Jesus, I asked him, so what do you think of Jesus? And we sat there in this little mud room at night 
the only light that we had was from a rechargeable lantern. And he looked around the room and his eyes settled on this wood beam that was holding up the broken roof. He said, no, Jesus, Jesus is like that beam. Without him, everything would just fall apart. And all of a sudden I started to realize that these broken times that we have been going through was leading to so, something so much greater. And through Muhammadu, his wife came and both of them were baptized together on the same night. A little bit later, his, his oldest son, his wife's brother came and they were baptized. And within a few months, Muhammadu had led 15 people to Christ. And this was a man I was reluctant to help. <laughs> you see, if we had not stayed, we would have completely missed out. By staying, we've seen God do things that we never would have seen. This was an unprecedented thing to happen, that these believers would come together as a family, that a husband and wife would decide to follow Jesus together. This has never happened among these people. We've seen one believer here who decides to follow and then fall away because of community pressure. Another believer here. But this group, they're together. They've decided together. And so they are standing strong together in following Jesus. And we just keep asking for more. And we would have missed out completely if we had left. We would have missed out on seeing other beautiful things like a man coming out of a coma because we prayed for him in the name of Jesus and a little boy's leg being healed because we prayed for him in the name of Jesus. We would have missed out on seeing a woman who when I said the name Jesus to her, she said, I had a dream about Jesus. And she said, there was a war going on around me and I saw three figures, but it was like they were one guy. She had a dream about the Trinity <laughs> and she's like, I looked up at this person and I said, and when I looked up all of the war, all of the chaos seized, and I said, who are you, Lord? She called him Lord in her dream. And guys, we would have missed out. We had to go through the breaking and the pain, all of that crushing. But if we had not endured and been faithful, we would have missed out and we don't want you to miss out. We speak to you right now as students and if you're going through that breaking process, we ask you to run to Jesus and cling to him because he's worth it. We know his goodness more now than we've ever known. We can say that with confidence and it's not just because we've read it in the Bible, it's because we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And so we ask you to run to Jesus with all that you have and say like what I said some days when I couldn't even pray and I said, help me, Lord. And he will. He may not take away that pain, but he will make it okay. And so we speak to your future ministry in five or 10 years when you're looking at us and saying, if that's what ministry is like, I don't wanna do it. Don't say that. In five or 10 years, when you are in the midst of your ministry and you are tired and weary and broken, 
We just ask that you run to Jesus with all that you have and you say you're still worth it. You are worth everything that I have. And that's not an easy place to come to, but we just cry out to you and say, do it because it's worth it. For the eternal glory of the Father, it's worth it. For souls to come to Jesus, it's worth it. For our own good, it is worth it to hang on. Hebrews 12 says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scoring its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. See, Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. But through it all, he found joy. A loaf of bread can only be made when the wheat is is, is crushed in a grain mill. Juice can only be made when grapes are ran through a wine press. And we can only find wholeness and joy when we have allowed ourselves to be broken. As you consider Jesus this Christmas season, consider to what pain God was submitting, sending him to this broken world. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider the kingdom and the saints who have gone before us. And so through our brokenness, through our pain, joy can indeed be found.